One afternoon in Florida, in 2014, 18-year-old Brisha Borden was running to pick up her godsister from school when she spotted an unlocked kid's bicycle and a silver scooter. Brisha and a friend grabbed the bike and scooter and tried to ride them down the street. Just as the 18-year-old girls were realizing they were too big for the toys, a woman came running after them, saying, That's my kid's stuff. They immediately dropped the stuff and walked away. But it was too late. A neighbor who witnessed the event had already called the police. Brisha and her friend were arrested and charged with burglary and petty theft for the items, valued at a total of $80. The previous summer, 41-year-old Vernon Prater was picked up for shoplifting $86.35 worth of tools from a nearby Home Depot store. He had already been convicted of several armed robbery charges and had served five years in prison. Borden, the 18-year-old, had a record too, but for juvenile misdemeanors. Something weird happened when the two defendants were booked into jail. A computer program spat out a score predicting the likelihood of each committing a future crime. Borden, the girl who picked up the bike, who's black, was rated a high risk. Prater, who's white, was rated a low risk. Three years later, we know the computer algorithm got it exactly the wrong way around. Brisha Borden has not been charged with any new crimes. Vernon Prater is serving an eight-year prison term for breaking into a warehouse and stealing thousands of dollars' worth of electronics. These risk assessments, done by an algorithm, are common in American courtrooms. They inform decisions about who gets set free and who is punished at every stage of the criminal justice system. But a ProPublica investigation looked into the accuracy of these risk assessments in a county in Florida and found that the algorithm was barely more accurate than a coin flip. Not only that, but the algorithm also showed significant racial bias in its outcome. It wrongly predicted black defendants as future criminals at almost twice the rate of white defendants. It's generally the most vulnerable in society who are exposed to evaluation by automated systems in the first place. It doesn't help if the systems themselves are often biased against them too. So why do big institutions rely on hallowed algorithms to make decisions for them? Coming up, we're used to thinking of artificial intelligence as objective, cold, and impassive. We think of software, particularly educational tech, as neutral and impassive. But what if the algorithms that we work with are just as capable of perpetuating implicit bias as the people who build them? This is Nevertheless, a podcast celebrating the women transforming teaching and learning through technology, supported by Pearson. Algorithms were in part precisely meant to remove bias from the equation, the kind of discrimination that Dame Stephanie Shirley, a pioneer in tech, suffered from when she was sending out her CV in the 1950s. She found that when she was sending her CV in to get jobs, she was not getting any interviews. So chatting to her husband, her husband said, well, why don't you try sending in your CV with the name Steve Shirley to see if it makes any difference? So uh, she did that and found that she did get called in for interview when people thought that she was a guy. That's Dr. Sue Black, OBE, a British computer scientist and academic, author of Saving Bletchley Park. She uh, went on to have a baby, and I think in those days you had to stop working 
if you became a mum. So she stopped working for the company that she was working for uh, and decided once she'd had the baby to, to set up her own business. So she set up a consultancy uh, but what happened was she got lots of work and had too much work for herself so she went to women with babies working from home as programmers and an example of the kind of software that uh, they were producing is the Concord Black Box Flight Recorder uh, and uh, she grew what was a consultancy into a massive um, software house called F International, which after a few years employed, I think about 300 and something women. Why, why haven't I grown up knowing her name, really? You know, why isn't she one of the most famous people in the UK? I really don't know. When she's done stuff which is similar to any of the tech pioneers that we do know about, most of whom are men. We always think of computer science these days as, you know, a male-dominated field, but it wasn't always like that. It started off with mainly women in computing, and then it's gradually uh, moved over to where we are today, where it's about 15 20%. You know, I think back to the 1940s, where it wasn't exactly all coding, but, you know, it was 80% women at Bletchley Park working there as part of the uh, code-breaking process. Bletchley Park in Britain is where the Nazi codes were deciphered during World War II. Although it was men who were building the hardware and machinery, women were doing the math. In the first half of the 20th century, it was not uncommon for women to study math at university. They mostly went into teaching, but by World War II, they were helping with the war effort. Similarly, in the U.S., it was also women programmers working at NASA during World War II. Women were thought to be much better um, at things like attention to detail and being consistent. And so that was seen as uh, really useful for the code-breaking process. And so, yeah, we've gone through having women as computers and then women writing code in the 1960s, 70s. And then it seems kind of around the 1980s when, when personal computers came in, the way that computing was or personal computers were advertised was that they were for men and if you look at any articles you can see there's photos from articles of the day or advertisements from the day which show usually you know maybe a boy sitting at a computer and a dad behind him showing him what to do. In the mid-90s Sue herself was doing a PhD in software engineering and she started going to conferences. So it would be say about 90% men at conferences If I wanted to get my papers published, it was good to kind of network with other people working in my research area. Actually, the first conference I went to, I decided to speak to one person. That was my goal. So a guy on stage gave a really good talk. He was really funny and down to earth. So I thought, well, I'll just chat to him in the break. He seems like he's okay. And then for the rest of the conference, every time I turned around, he was staring at me. And I was traumatised thinking that I'd said something to offend him. Whereas 10 years later, maybe, I kind of realised that possibly he thought I fancied him. He thought I fancied him. That's why I was talking to him. Then Sue went to a Women in Science conference where there were mostly women. You know, I sort of went there thinking, I don't really like conferences, but I'm going anyway. Um, But I just had the most amazing time at that conference. And it was, you know, it really showed me that if you're in the majority life is so much easier. It really, really is. Going to that conference kind of changed my life and my understanding of my, of myself, really, because I just thought, OK, so it's not me that's rubbish at talking to people at conferences. It's just the environment is not making it conducive to me having a good time at conferences. You've not had that experience. How are you going to work out 
what to do about it. So if I'd been uh, a male student, PhD student, well, I wouldn't have had any of those issues, right? So how how would I have then known that the issue existed and what to do about it? That's exactly the crux of the problem. It's usually white men doing the hiring in tech companies. Even if they don't have explicit bias, there's always the little worm of implicit human bias. There's no way of easily overriding that. What many companies have done is to try to remove some of the subjectivity in the hiring process by passing the task off to machines, algorithms, and AI, which are seen as more objective. So people called Stephanie don't have to change their name to Steve to stand a better chance. The intentions are good. Problem is, algorithms are built by humans. Even in specifying what you want something to do, you can have bias going in there, and then you can have bias going in at the design stage. So by the time you you get to the implementation stage, you can have a very biased piece of software. There was one particular video that went viral, which showed exactly how prejudiced and malfunctioning software can be. There was a hand dryer and there was a guy who was so a black guy was putting his hand under the hand dryer and it wasn't going on. So he tried it several times, it wasn't going on. And then he put like a sheet of white toilet paper on his hand and put it under the hand dryer and then it goes on. <laughs> so it only works for white people, basically. You know, and that's exactly it. So there obviously was no diversity of thought or diversity in the design team for that. Because how would you manage to do that? You know, I mean, obviously, because you've never tried it out on a black person. That wouldn't be the first time software was explicitly racist. A couple of years ago, the Google Photos app tagged black people as gorillas. I mean, what kind of sample images did they use during the software development to make this possible? This isn't a one-off. It's deeply rooted. Way back when people used film cameras, Kodak used a coating on its film that favored white skin tones. There's also built-in gender bias. A year ago, if you searched for a female contact on LinkedIn, the professional networking site, say Stephanie Shirley, the website would ask if you meant Steve Shirley. Really, it's no surprise that Microsoft's teen chatbot, Tay, designed to mimic the speech of an average American girl, turned into an absolute unmitigated jerk. Hours into her grand debut, Tay was echoing Donald Trump's stance on immigration, saying Hitler was right, and agreeing that 9-11 was probably an inside job. Microsoft invited users to be part of the process of helping Tay learn. You can imagine what happened next. Garbage in, garbage out. No magic algorithm automatically generates a robot. You know, every AI system actually is a very complicated system of design that humans have intended. It's not something that is just coming out from outer space or evolving up from from the soil or something. That's Dr. Joanna Bryson, professor at the University of Bath and a fellow at Princeton. She researches intelligence, both artificial and human. In a recent study, she tried to empirically demonstrate that when you put words into an AI system, it absorbs all kinds of meaning outside the bare-bones dictionary definition. And that includes cultural prejudice. So what is going on with artificial intelligence, especially in the last few years, is we've gotten really good at taking all the stuff humans have already learned and uploading it into computers using things that we call machine learning. 
the amazing thing about that is that we can upload even things like semantics. So semantics is what do words mean? If you say, I'm going to go home and walk the dog, or I'm going to go home and walk the cat, well, you probably wouldn't say it. Okay, let's say feed feed the cat. Then someone who didn't know anything, like a computer that, that's just been built, doesn't know anything, but it could kind of guess that cat and dog might mean something that's sort of similar. All right. And actually, the fact that you walk one and not the other, that shows you that they're a little different, right? And so you can just use the words around the words without knowing what any of the words mean to get sort of a structure so, so that you can get a structure of how the words relate to each other. And then if you learn just a couple of things about the world, that's called grounding, right? And so then you can get what all the other words mean that you already figured out from uh, how they related to each other. Anyway, so that was my theory of semantics, and we decided to test it, and we tested it by looking at a really basic psychological uh, study called the Implicit Association Test. So this is something that's kind of famous and, and actually controversial because it shows that at an at a implicit level, so not consciously, not something you choose to do, but at an implicit level, you tend to associate, for example, women with the home and men with careers. It's not that you don't associate women with careers. It's that you're, it's easier to associate women with a home and men with a career than to associate men with a home and women with a career. These implicit biases have already been proved by psychologists. What Joanna was trying to do was see if the AI would react the same way that humans would. Would the AI pick up on this implicit human bias? She selected a set of words to represent men, women, home, and work that psychology studies show humans had associated with each other and fed them into the computer. And guess what? Every single form of bias that the psychologists had found in humans, we also found in the computer. So, if people are sexist and racist, computers will be too. She also studied who gets invited to interviews. The humans in the implicit bias tests discriminated against African-American names. So did the computers. One of the things the psychologists tried just to make sure that their, their, their stuff worked before they did these controversial concepts was insects and flowers. So which is more pleasant or more unpleasant between insects and flowers? And we also got that. And so to me, that's astonishing that you could have a computer know that flowers are pleasant, a computer with no experience of the real world. And yet we have this visceral, it's literally visceral to say that you like flowers and you don't like insects. All these attitudes that we have that must come from our embodiment. We have, you know, there's good physical reasons for liking flowers and disliking insects, right? But it's been captured and we can communicate it between each other. And people sort of suspected this before because you can talk to someone who's blind and if you're talking like across a computer, you couldn't tell they were blind. They'll still use visual metaphors. They'll say, oh, I'll look into it or yeah, I'll see you later. You know, they'll say things like that. And of course they would, right? But how, how do they use those metaphors? Because our whole culture tells them what it's like to, to have vision. And so this is saying that our whole culture is telling us that, <laughs> unfortunately, that there's something unpleasant about being African-American. And that's not something that we were, of course, happy to find out. And so then the headlines were, oh, computers are racist. But how does an AI learn implicit bias beyond just what it thinks the words mean on paper? The point of all this is that if we expose a machine learning system to what humans are exposed to, then it gets the same kind of prejudices, or I should say stereotypes, that humans get. And that actually most of those are accurate. 
And so this actually gives a different understanding of where the stereotypes and the prejudices are coming from, because we always assume that like, you know, evil people uh, taught their kids to be, uh, to be evil or something. Um, but at this point, we're saying, well, maybe all these things that we call stereotypes are based on something about our, our past that we've decided consciously we don't want this to be true anymore. It isn't that machine learning is making it worse than it already is. I think one of the really important things is to realize that kids just be just reading the internet, just reading the newspapers, would pick up the same biases. So it's not that you can just protect your kid from from seeing these biases if if you're letting your kid read, right? Artificial intelligence gives us the opportunity to to examine these things that are happening in our culture already. Now the question is, does it give us also an opportunity to engineer. So let's say you wanted to remove all of these biases from data. Let's say you wanted to um, correct your test results to eliminate sexism. Sexism is only one ism. Um, there are multiple different ways that prejudices intersect. So you are talking about engineering society at that scale, and that's something I find really worrying. Um, and I'm not sure I do want the companies to decide how to engineer society. So I think it's better for us to think about how can we create the, the training data that we want to live with um, and how do we improve society it's, if, as long as we keep working on our culture and also um, we keep updating the AI so it keeps up with the contemporary culture then I think we're, we can be okay. And I think that makes more sense than sending it all to, to um, companies. But there are things that tech companies can do and are trying to do to diversify the culture and to make sure human bias doesn't get into actual technology products. Here's Sue Black again. Whoever you've got designing the AI system, if there's no diversity in there, diversity of understanding and experience, then you're going to get a product which is tailored specifically only for the, the, the kind of mindset of the people that have... Uh, designed and built it so you know so you could have gender bias you could have could have all sorts of bias in your AI system because you know people are writing the code people are doing the design people are writing the code people are biased so you need diversity inclusion to be considered um, very seriously in terms of when you're designing and, and building any kind of software system So, you know, kind of the whole diversity and inclusion piece, I think, is hard if you haven't been a part of that. And so because I guess tech is mainly white males, then if you've never experienced any of that, how are you going to know, first of all, that it exists? Well, you know, so we're hearing more and more now, which is great. So people's stories are getting out there of things that have happened. So then kind of taking that experience and trying to work out exactly what to do about it you know, is is not a straightforward thing. But at the same time, we need to do it, right? This is something Chuen Fang, Global Advisor for Diversity and Inclusion at Pearson, is acutely aware of. You know, once someone's hired in, what are they doing to help us 
reflect our customers? Are we aware uh, our teams all work and think and look the same? And um, how, what are we doing to ensure that our products are accessible to all learners? For example, diversity and inclusion can't just be this extracurricular uh, thing in people's heads. Uh, we see it as you know being necessary as part of the product development cycles and teams, and uh, that's that's where we're looking as well. Then there are the pure economics to consider. More diverse companies tend to be more profitable. Gender diverse companies are 15% more likely to outperform homogenous companies, ethnically diverse companies by 35%, according to McKinsey. And if someone isn't happy at a company and leaves, it costs a company on average about 20% based on um, recent uh, studies of that person's salary to replace that person. So from a bottom line standpoint, you can look at the cost involved when uh, teams are less diverse, um, but you can also look at it in terms of how you develop products and services that meet the needs of the growing diversity in, in your marketplace. So our team has people with disabilities on it, and I think that is the greatest value that our team offers to product teams across Pearson. We are able to show them that a person who is blind or visually impaired uses special tools, but they're just like anybody else. That's Jan McSorley, VP of Accessibility at Pearson. Bias, whether it's to do with gender, race, or ability, is all about who gets opportunities and access. And it helps product teams understand that the way we design our product can either open a door or it can close it. And once we as a company can understand that when we design our products with the needs of people with disabilities, with diverse needs in mind from the beginning. Not only are we helping those people with disabilities reach their goals and objectives in life, but we're also enhancing our own products. We're making our products better because accessible design is just better design. Okay, so it's a universally held truth that diversity makes companies and software better in many different ways. The big challenge is actually implementing this truth, making the workplace diverse. The hiring practice is the obvious first place to start. Carissa Romero works at Paradigm, where she applies behavioral science and data to help companies become more diverse. Um, I think companies often find it challenging to then figure out, well, how do I know if I have an inclusive culture? And so what, what we did is we developed um, an inclusion survey by looking at things in behavioral science research that we know are important for success uh, for all people, but particularly for people from underrepresented groups and areas where we know there are likely to be differences based on past research. So this includes things like a sense of belonging, right? Do you just generally feel like you belong in the organization? This includes things like fairness. Do you feel like promotion decisions are fair? Do you feel like opportunities are equally distributed? Things like voice, um, do you feel comfortable speaking up? When you do speak up, do you feel heard? So companies can measure these things, and then they can also ask people lots of questions about their demographic background. So you can then break down the results by things like gender, race, ethnicity, age, uh, parental status, and see are there groups that are having a different experience, who are perceiving the culture differently here, and you know which groups are those that we can start to address those challenges. 
One challenge the tech industry faces is its sort of fixed mindset around the idea of a culture of genius, you know, the tech wizard or the rock star programmer. This belief that only certain people can be superstar performers or this idea that some people have a technical mind. We know that when companies have more of a fixed mindset culture or when people have more of a fixed mindset culture, they're actually more likely to rely on stereotypes, which makes sense because stereotypes are essentially beliefs about groups' fixed abilities. So if you kind of buy into that idea of fixed abilities, you're going to be a lot more likely to, to rely on stereotypes. The industry ends up a lot more likely to be relying on these stereotypes. And these prejudices filter down right from the hiring process into the software itself that tech companies build. Bias in algorithms used in the criminal justice system has pretty high stakes. They could determine whether you're a free individual or get all your basic freedoms taken away. Other software biases, like the case of search engines trying to correct female names to male ones, might not significantly affect one person's life, but they are no less insidious. They reveal something ugly about the core of our culture. And then it ends up being kids who absorb and mimic our culture the most. If there is bias built into the educational technology that they use, whether that's around gender, race, or ability, the prejudices in our society will just continue repeating themselves in an endless cycle. In turn, slowly changing the culture may change the algorithms. Nevertheless is a Story Things production, produced by Dasha Lisitsina, research and editing by Anjali Ramachandram, music and sound design by Jason Oberholzer, supported by Pearson and presented by me, Lee Alexander. For show notes, go to neverthelesspodcast.com. Listener.